0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit CanDoWealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast, the Spectator's Executive Editor. This week, is Boris Johnson done for?
0: Plus, is there a dangerous side to self-improvement?
1: And finally, how attractive are your
0: feet? First up, in this week's Spectator, our political editor James Forsyth and our deputy political editor Katie Balls write about Boris Johnson's perilous position in the aftermath of the Partygate scandal. They join us now to predict the Prime Minister's fate. James. The cover of The Spectator this week shows Boris Johnson crashed headfirst into the ground and the headline is a question, the question, of the week, I think. So I think it's the question that we'd better start with. Is it over?
2: I think for the first time in Boris Johnson's premiership, his fate is out of his hands. You know, it doesn't matter what he does now. It's other forces that determine whether or not he survives. And... I think mean, you can identify three of those forces, right? So the first is, what does Sue Gray's report say? Now, if you look at all these tweets from cabinet ministers in support of Boris Johnson, they're not really actually in support of Boris Johnson. Instead, what they're saying is the prime minister was right to apologise and Sue Gray should be allowed to get on with her job and write her report. Now, Sue Gray's report is not going to act as judge and jury. It is going to set out the facts. And I think that is what some of those close to Boris Johnson are pinning their hopes on because the report is not going to include a sentence saying something like the Prime Minister should resign. That's not what this report is meant to do. And so I think some of them hope for that. But I think lots of Tory MPs are waiting for that report because, as one minister put it to me this morning, you know, does that report give you enough to defend what happened to, you know, both your association chairman and the person who stops you in the supermarket saying that first lockdown was bloody tough, what was going on so that that that's his fourth one. The second question is you know how do Tory MPs react the bar for Tory MPs writing a letter to the chairman 22 is, is, is very high I mean K- Katie can recount multiple similar conversations you talk to Tory MPs and they'll say he's got to go it's over he's dooming us to defeat and then you say "If you written a letter and they, they look at you like you're slightly mad and say no and say so don't, don't think that people just being unhappy leads to letters the bars that's quite high but you know, I think there is I think it is fair to say that there are a dribble of letters going in and these things gather momentum. One former cabinet minister said to me on Tuesday that they were, uh, I was going to call for him to go this morning, but I realised that nobody else has done, so I'm not going to. There is a kind of nature of that. Then I think this is probably the most important factor. What do the public think about this? Most the MPs are what one might call Johnson pragmatists. They are basically prepared to put up with all of the, kind of, the slight chaos that Boris Johnson tends to bring with him as long as they think it delivers for them electorally. And the, that relationship between him and the Tory party has always been very transactional. And so watch the polls and also watch the fact that we've got big load set of local elections in May. And so in March, for the first time in in two years in lots of cases, you are going to see lots of Tories going out on the doors canvassing. I mean, because of COVID, these, these things have been much more restricted. And I think if they are met with a kind of wall of noise... That's the problem. I think one of the big worries for Boris Johnson at the moment is, you know, as one former minister who backed him in leadership said to me yesterday, you know, all the emails he is getting, you know, they aren't raining against the government. They're all raining against the prime minister personally. But then, you know, Johnson optimists would say, look, this is the worst of it you know if you can get through it people you know if you can even get to local elections in May you know the other issues will be dominating the political scene cost of living and all these things so I think it is you know the grey report Tory MPs letters and the public's reaction those those three things are what determine whether it's over or not.
1: Katie you write the political column this week and and you look at another question which is after Boris who is that something that Tory MPs are now starting to discuss?
3: Yeah there's definitely lots of conversations um some quiet some not so quiet I struck this week just you know sitting in Port Culler's house which is the almost the cafeteria area where most people meet the you know I think James the notice this too Tory MPs are not trying to be too secretive when they're explaining they're angry with the prime minister or saying you know who they don't want to be prime minister next I think they're being quiet about who they do want to be prime minister next uh, as camps get ready um but I think as James touches on in a way I think that the conversation of in the past 24 hours 48 hours since uh, you know the leak of that email suggesting this party and then boris johnson's admission that he attended it has become very much you know well the cabinet are backing him and you know there's not the letters in so he should be fine and sue gray's report which is obviously quite decisive in all this is one by which it It will bring lots of evidence forward, but while everyone says wait for it, it, no one quite expects it to say, oh, the Prime Minister is a criminal, he must go. But even if the Sue report doesn't really move the dial, the point is there's a poll out today which puts Labour 10 points ahead. As time goes on, if, as James is touching on, people think that Boris Johnson is just too toxic right now and can't turn that around, you know, it could happen in six weeks, six months, after locals. I think it's almost uh we've started looking at it in just in the order of when these various reports come which i think is it's ultimately a political decision to get rid of a prime minister and to pick a successor and that means much as a report might feed into it it's a little bit of a red herring i think in the in the grander scheme of things and therefore the political conversations are about who'd be better placed to lead the party into the next election rather than boris johnson and i do think it's rishi sunak and liz truss who are still the most common names but more and more people are starting to talk about figures such as Nadeem Sahori, the Education Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. He was in the final two against Boris Johnson in the last leadership election as someone who is not tainted by any of this. If you could really talk about, you know, a toxic row on parties. And that's what we're starting to see more of. But what I think is helping Boris Johnson the most right now, if he does want to fight, and I think the indication so far is that he is digging in, is there is no consensus whatsoever. And some MPs are really quite anti some of the people who could replace Boris Johnson.
0: James, uh, we're recording this podcast on Thursday morning, so the day after Boris Johnson's appearance and Prime Minister's questions and his uh, apology or perhaps half apology just before the, the regular proceedings. And our colleague Isabel Hardman uh, wrote that she was sent an emoji of a gravestone by a Tory MP during PMQs, perhaps a prediction or a threat, who knows. Uh, but what do you think about uh, the Prime Minister's apology yesterday afternoon? Do you think that has improved the situation, or has it actually made it worse, or do you think it sort of hasn't had much effect at all? I, I think the latter. I think that the the, 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 the the way he could have taken control
2: of a situation and got himself ahead of a Great Report would have been to have kind of issued another apology saying, look, this event took place, it was wrong I shouldn't have gone there, it was against the rules, you know, that way you could you know, and then explain the kind of the human reasons why you wanted to do it. Now, he obviously did not want to do that because he didn't want to say that he had been to something that was against the rules but that meant that the apology started off and then by the end of it had become kind of quite legalistic, kind of pointing to the fact that, you know, the garden is an ex- is an extension of the office premises of Downing Street and the like. I thought what you saw at PMQs was the Tory party in waiting mode. You know, Tory MPs were totally silent. You know, they didn't shout support of him. When Keir Starmer said the British public thought he was a liar, normally a reaction because that's you're not allowed to accuse people of being a liar in the Commons chamber. You know, normally have had Tory benches shouting outrage, silence. But at the same time, no one stood up and said, this event was wrong you know, this this position is untenable. So I think you saw there, Tory MPs are just sitting and waiting. They are waiting to decide which way to break. And, you know, this is not kind of profiles encouraged stuff. I think they are waiting to see where public opinion lands on this question.
1: Katie, Rod also writes about all of this in his column this week. And he makes the point that once you've removed Boris's popularity with the electorate, you've removed the entire point to the man and there is nothing left. Do you think that's a sort of sentiment shared by lots of Tory MPs? I think that's a big part of the issue and that's why I think that, in a way the most important
3: thing here is consistent opinion polls and obviously people can say oh it's mid-term um, but this I don't think anyone thinks this is about the government being mid-term when, when they get this bad and it's about a specific incident which Downing Street have made much worse through repeated denials some of which have really come from dubious things the Prime Minister has said and again I think James has said it many times in this podcast I will echo him but it is a transactional relationship I think what probably could help Boris Johnson a little bit is because there is still this sense that you know he is this Teflon politician that he can bounce back in a way others can't that there is a temptation particularly if you think oh I don't want Prime Minister this trust, which is what one former minister said to me. You know, there's a temptation to just wait to see if you know if he does have a bit more magic left, which is going to turn things around. But I think if you are seeing this change in the polls, which is pretty consistent for a few, you know in a several month pattern, maybe you know the climax of that's local elections. Maybe it's the fact that there's. This reaction on the doorstep, or or it could be something else we can't yet predict. Then I do think that's the point when people start to think, well, are we going to follow this person in? Because also, Boris Johnson hasn't done much in terms of policy that MPs really like, and this is the other thing—he doesn't have um, a huge ideological, you know, crowd behind him. Because what is Boris Johnson's ideology? They talk about the vaccine rollout. There's obviously delivering Brexit, um, but that isn't going to be enough in the next election. And levelling up has really struggled to get off the ground. So tax rises are still to come in in the spring. And I think, therefore, it's not just that it's transactions, that there isn't a pact saying... Boris Johnson's vision for the country is what chimed with me when I decided to be a Tory MP. I think
2: mean, one of the striking things about the, 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 this YouGov poll we've been talking about, and it's something that one cabinetman has pointed out to me this morning, you know, Tories are down at 28%, but Labour don't breach 40% in the poll. They're at 38%. And I mean, paradoxically, that is actually a danger for Boris Johnson. If Labour were in the position that they were in the 90s under Tony Blair, there would be a kind of certain fatalism. I think mean, one of the risks is that the Tory party look at Keir Starman's Labour Party and think it is beatable. And so the conversation then becomes about how do you kind of maximise your chances at the next election of beating it, rather than if you think back to ninety seven, there was a kind of Tory sense that you know what was the point in sending Michael Portillo, for example, into battle in that election because the Tories were going to lose anyway, so why not lose and then rebuild? There isn't a sense on the Tory side that the next election is lost, and I think that that means that people will be watching the polls much more closely, and, and as Katie said, you know much more closely to see whether this transactional relationship with Boris Johnson is going to continue to deliver for them or not.
0: Well I think uh, Katie's idea that uh, Boris's ability to bounce back um, is something which we've certainly talked about a lot on podcasts before but James what do you see as if he can bounce back from this do you see a particular route he could take in order to do so because it, it seems to me that that's, uh, that's pretty unclear at the moment. So I mean, this
2: is one of the things that is difficult for him. I think if he had um, conducted this Podcast before this email came out and everything like that. I said, look, the obvious relaunch moment for his premiership is the 26th of January when it looks like all the COVID restrictions will be able to go because the numbers are coming down, and he could say, look, you know, I kept things open while Drakeford and Sturgeon shut things down, and we're through this, and you know, this this country is the first country to 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 get to a state where COVID is endemic and you and you can live with it. I still think that is a an obvious. Kind of good moment for him, but I think it is harder for him now to find things about COVID restrictions being kind of pure positives. And I think the other thing that is difficult for him is this is going to be a very hard year. You know, inflation is high, the energy price cap has artificially depressed consumers' bills, but that is coming to an end. In February, the regulator will say how much that is going up by. In April, national insurance rises to try and deal with the NHS backlogs. And so it's hard to see the, the thing that you seize onto to say, here and now for the good news. And I mean think that, that, that's one of the things that this, even before all of this broke, this was going to be a year of hard yards for the government and, and uh, with, with not a huge amount of good news to shout about.
1: Katie, just just finally, this, this story obviously wasn't even really the first story that had come out about all these different parties and, and they are kind of dripping out. Do you think there's a risk that something else comes out and, and is possibly quite damaging?
3: Yeah, I think there is a risk because also what there does seem to be a general consensus on both in Downing Street and when it comes to what people expect from Sea Gray's report, is that there is a culture of, you know, drinking um, during the pandemic and obviously, you know, it's a slippery slope from what seems a grey area. Then you have an email and it's more clear cut because it's saying, you know, bring your own booze, enjoy the sun, but not you don't work in Downing Street. So I think that there is a risk there are lots more things that could come out that could fall into that category. And I think ultimately whether or not Boris Johnson goes, you know, in the next few weeks, the next few months will lead the party into the next election. We have gone from a situation where, if you think back to the, lo- the last local elections, people were talking about know, Boris Johnson in world king mode. That's what people say to be you know, confidently predicting 10 more years of Boris Johnson, some of his supporters. And we're now in a case where it's just a question of really can he actually make it to the end of the year and the bookies have the odds against him.
1: Thank you, James and Katie. Next up, the hashtag manifesting has had billions of impressions on social media in the past year. Younger generations love it, and Mary Wakefield explores this viral phenomenon in her column this week. She joins us now along with Ali Head, the health and sustainability editor for Marie Claire UK, who's interviewed a number of manifestation experts. Ali, I'd like to start with you, as you've spoken to a lot of people about this concept of manifesting. Can you explain to listeners who might not be aware of the term what exactly it means and and sort of how you see it?
4: Yeah, of course. And well, Laura, thank you so much for having me today. I spoke to a handful of experts for the piece and There was quite a range, actually, of definitions that came back, but the kind of one that stuck out to me the most and that I've kept at the forefront of my article and the forefront of my mind is the one from Pam Lidford and Sandra Stocks. They're the authors of 16 Seconds, uh, debunking the myths surrounding manifestation. And in really simple terms, they just said that manifesting in its simplest form is the theory that we can all bring tangible change to our lives through positive thoughts, beliefs and positive thinking basically it's obviously not a new concept it's actually been around for quite a long time and is rooted in that kind of new thought philosophy that you touch on in your piece Mary kind of 19th century movement which originated in the US and has that big focus on spiritual healing metaphysics but also top line making your dreams ambitions goals a reality do I agree with the concept I'm not sure it depends in what form you ask if I agree with it I think I'm open to the idea of manifestation, if it's in, in a sense of achieving a goal or setting a goal and helping yourself to reach it by working out what the goal is, working out how you're going to get there, what you're going to do to actually make it happen. I don't think you can manifest avoiding illness, for example. One of the examples that Lidford and Stocks use again and again when I spoke to them, which I thought was quite scary, people think they can manifest not getting COVID or, you know, not getting illnesses like that. And that's where I think it gets a bit, gets a bit sketchy, doesn't it?
0: Yes, and Mary, in your column, I think it's quite clear that you're you're not in favour of manifestation. But do you at least do you think see the attraction of it for some people? Well, I,
5: just, I think we agree. Um, I, I mean, I, I mean, I think I'd be all for setting goals, you know, and organising your mind. What sort of scared me about it, as you say, it's been around a long time. is just, I suppose, a the idea that everything's about you, and everything's, you know, so you have to wake up in the morning and think, kind of, what should I do? How shall I improve myself? Whereas in my experience, you know, the more I forget myself, the happier I am. Now, of course, that doesn't mean not having goals and not, you know, fixing a broken arm or something. But um, so it's just the mindset of always thinking of yourself as a product to be worked on. And then, of course, what I think we agree on is um, I think the idea that, you know, if you just will something hard enough, it's going to happen. is very dangerous. But I think, yeah, you you, you don't seem to think. (laughs) Well, Ali, one of the
1: points that Mary makes in her piece is that you can tell a lot about an era by its aphorisms and and the Victorian stitched onto footstools phrases like the Lord will provide and charity begins at home, whereas obviously the sort of the millennial and Gen Z generation, you're more likely to see something like, If you believe it it will, you know, it will happen. What do you think that tells us about sort of the younger generations?
4: I actually think it's probably a reflection of our time and I think you always have to think about these trends. Contextually, you know when they happen in the context of that time, and right now we 've seen this huge boom in manifestation, spirituality kind of protecting your energy, even crystals. people are going mad for crystals at the moment. And I know my youngest sister is on TikTok and is always talking to me about what they can do for you. I'm not so keen on all of but that. But do you,
5: do you believe in the crystals? And what do you say to her? And how does she react when you say you don't think the blue crystal does promote?
4: She's very switched on, to be fair, so she is fully in agreement with me. But I think it shows that people are desperate right now. Um, so why, is she, why really- is she
5: doing it? Her? Why is she then... Why does she... Do the crystals on TikTok if she doesn't believe they do have heat.
4: So she she personally doesn't doesn't do them, but a friend oh, of mine, Joanna, does. Um, and I asked her, I point pinned her with exactly the same question because I was like, why do you do them yeah. if you're not so sure? And she just said, because why wouldn't she? It's just she not see the harm. <laughs> I <mean, "You're> <laughs> like, why not?
5: For me, you know, I'm a sort of earnest, you know, someone sort of you know brought up in the '80s, but. For me, there's also it's a lot of it's very commercial. You can sell a huge amount of gear off this. I mean, limitless amount. And so there's for me, it sort of drives this idea of you know spiritual, new age approach, but also everyone can make a buck selling kind of crystals. But maybe that's just me being on, having an old fashioned mindset. Maybe there is no.
0: Is that what turns you off about it more than anything? Is 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 the, the hypocrisy? The, of, yeah, and the and the commercialism of it. No,
5: I think that's funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> What turns me off is just this thing of I think this is an anxious generation, I think they 've got reason to be anxious. The world is changing so fast and faster than it 's ever changed before. Covid made everyone anxious, but especially if you 're young still you know and you're you're not in school or your university's online, so you 're looking for certainty, and I think this is the wrong sort of certainty. The idea that you can make the world bend to your will is reassuring, gives you a sense of control it 's just not true
0: hmm. so do you think that's it's not actually self-improvement in that sense. It's actually more of an idea that you can make the world move to you, rather than actually make yourself any better.
5: Yeah, that's. I mean, the manifesting, as as explained by sort of lots of other people, is the sense that if you visualise something, the energy, positive energy of the of your thought will attract the thing towards you. And if you actually start believing that, then you get into some dangerous territory. You st- you know, for you you start thinking that bad things that happen to people, as you said before are a result of their negative energy or if some you know someone homeless or with cancer might have deserved it it, it has some slightly strange cor- mm. effect. Ali I think I'm mean, certainly from the people I know who've sort of talked about manifesting and then sort
1: of what I've read about it it does seem like it might be a more sort of that women are perhaps more interested in it than men what would you say that's a fair assessment And and, and what do you think that tells us?
4: I think you are probably right. I don't know if it's just because I work for a, a women's lifestyle publication that I predominantly see the, the women who are interested in it, but I think there's more of an audience for kind of wellness and well-being when it comes to women or people who are, who identify as women. I think it's just sometimes seen as a more feminine Thing. I think generally speaking yeah I think it is more of a female thing I do agree with what you were saying Mary about the the, the dangers of it being commercialized though and that's where I kind of re- resent it a little bit that the manifestation that I kind of wrote about in my article and, and spoke to several experts about was it kind of really stripped back and really kind of basically owning in on having a goal Understanding what it is that will get you, you know, actually help you achieve that goal, and zoning out of the things like the crystals, for example, that we spoke about. That if you don't actually believe in them, um, you know, and don't truly understand what they're going to do, you don't then spend the money on them, or the self-help books, or the you know what have you. That is just another way of getting you to. So,
5: how is it different from like? You you seem to be talking about life coaching.
4: It's interesting you say that. So all of the experts that I spoke to, uh, you know. basically just said that that is what manifestation is. I went live with Sarah Kuburik yesterday, who is an existential psychotherapist, and we spent a lot of the live talking about not necessarily New Year's goals, but intentions, and living with intention, and kind of living an intentional life. And I actually think it's just a reflection on what a lot of people are feeling right now. People are scared. They've lived through two years of trauma and kind of loss and death. And there's quite a lot of research that shows that there's a link between really when people are chronically stressed or living through stressful times, they reach out and kind of turn to these alternative ways of thinking or these alternative ways of coping as a way of rationalizing what is happening and, and what they're living through and i think that's certainly true of now we've seen chaos in the last two years kind of emotionally societally politically that we've never seen or had to cope with before and so i don't think it's a coincidence that things like manifestation are suddenly taking off
5: in the absence of sort of organised religion you haven't got uh, you know you're trying to recreate something that you can hold on to but Mary,
1: are there any millennial aphorisms that you find sort of appealing? Have you seen one on a pencil case oh, that you God. think,
6: yes, that's the one for me?
5: Well, I used to like be kind. I thought that was nice until I realised it meant you be kind to me, not me be kind to you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Suddenly you realised, oh, you're telling me to be kind. You're not saying you're going to be kind. I'll have to work on that. I'll manifest on <laughs>
0: <You're laughs> you me. Yeah. manifest the it. Um, it's interesting you made the comparison there, Mary, I think, with organised religion, because I mean, what do you say to someone, perhaps a millennial, uh, who might say to you, well, my belief in self-manifestation is no sillier inherently than someone who believes in the power of prayer, let's Completely.
5: Say. Well, start with, I'd be completely happy. If you were working hard to manifest something for me, I would have no worries about that. I mean, not just because <laughs> you were doing it for me, but because I think that's sort of healthy to want something for someone else. It's the endlessly getting stuff for yourself that worries me. And, and I think... The other thing is prayer is letting things go a lot. It's not saying I desperately want this to happen. It's saying, you know, Mm. this is on my mind, but I'm letting it go and accepting that the world is as, you know, God wants it to be. So it's it's a different thing. In a way, it's letting go, not grabbing.
0: Do you think in that sense, manifestation puts far too much pressure on young people to do it for themselves in that way because it's yeah. not letting go it's, yeah
5: it's, maybe a bit more buddhism or, or christianity manifesting for their friends or something. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> put a manifestation <laughs> that's, your, that's your yeah.
0: <laughs> ali and mary thank you very much and finally kate andrews the spectators economics editor made an unusual discovery at the end of last year pictures of her and flip-flops had made it onto a particular website Wikifeet, the internet's largest collaborative celebrity feet website Kate wrote about her surprising discovery in this week's magazine, and she joins us now along with Teresa Bedford, a personal finance and investing expert who has written about the best ways to sell pictures of your feet online. Words I never thought I'd say on this podcast.
1: Kate, I actually feel like we should start off with an apology from me, because in the magazine this week you write about discovering that you have a page on the website called WikiFeet, which is a website which has millions of pictures of celebrity feet, and it was actually... Myself, who discovered that this website existed. Would you have rather not have learned that you had a picture of your feet on this website?
7: That's a great question. I think in general, you know, knowledge is power. Better to know these things. It's it's brought a few things together for me um, in terms of timelines. Um, But no, I actually would like to be living in ignorance. I do accept your apology, though, Laura. Thank you. And, And take
1: us through the timeline. I
7: will take you through the timeline. So maybe five years ago, I started getting requests somewhat intermittently to see photos of my feet and I had no idea why there was nothing in my life that obviously triggered this incoming of requests and a lot of them were like very straightforward like please send me a photo of your foot and then there was this one act well this one man I don't know if he was an academic who sent some incredible emails to my former work account like saying he was doing this huge study and that big broadcasters like on the BBC and Sky had all sent him details of their feet and he was he was just waiting on mine I did not give him anything but I was actually really impressed by the the lengths he was going to anyway I, you discovered wiki feet Laura and I should tell listeners that there was some genuine research going on in the <laughs> That's office you, that you yes <laughs> that, that there was a, a piece that was connected possibly to a foot fetish story and we were genuinely doing some research, Laura finds Wikifeet and then um, we discover I have a profile on it. And I was pretty shocked and horrified. Um, and my colleagues were absolutely delighted uh, because this meant that they could get me to write an article for the magazine. Uh, so I forgive you, Laura. I don't necessarily forgive Will. A good profile, was- though.
0: It was a good profile. Four out of five stars.
7: Yeah, delighted. Absolutely delighted. But yeah, no, Will, I'm not sure I forgive you because you were relentless week after week getting me to write this piece. (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) It's just very funny. Um, Teresa, you're, we should say for our listeners, a money expert, not a foot expert, just to be clear. But you have written uh, an extensive guide on how you might monetize uh, pictures of your feed. If Kate was so interested, what kind of money? Kate's not
6: interested. What kind
0: of money could she be making?
6: (laughs) Uh, That is correct. I am a money blogger and a a finance expert. So um, it really just varies. I think people just starting out are probably looking at a few dollars per picture. But if you add that up, if you sell 20 pictures for $5, that's $100. And then there are some people online who are selling one single picture for $100. So if they're selling 20, that's a few thousand. So it just varies. I think it comes with consistency. Like most things in life, if you're making something extra, the consistency of putting yourself out there is going to increase your marketability.
1: And have you ever tried selling a picture of your feet?
6: <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I have to say, though, a few people after I published this article did say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Yes. Well, I mean, in your- I
7: didn't either. I, I also learned a lot from it.
0: In in your piece, there you, there's so many places where it seems one is able to do this. You know, if you wanted, there's InstaFeet, Feet, Finder, Feetify, Feet Picks, Dollar Feet. I mean, were you when you started researching this piece? Were you inter- were you um, surprised to find that there was such a industry, such a large industry, or such a, I suppose, such a, a demand for such an odd thing?
6: I was shocked. I was very <laughs> surprised, um, even to begin writing the piece. It was something that I had never thought about. I have to say, though, a lot of it comes from just limiting beliefs, just thinking about things in our world and not thinking about what other people may be interested in. But I was happy to find that it's not just about foot fetishes. You could sell pictures for medical books, for movies. You have lots of different options, and they even have foot models. (laughs) Maybe those are the ones in the commercials.
1: (laughs) Okay, some of the photos, well, the, all the photos actually that appeared on WikiFeet were taken from your Instagram. Did, did you feel at all sort of violated knowing that pictures of your feet had just been sort of taken and uploaded to this website
7: so and this is the bit about the timeline I I finally realized why I might have started getting those emails that made no sense because I think it roughly lines up with when somebody created a wiki feet profile for me by by taking my photos look I was I was really quite horrified and a bit shocked and stunned but I also don't want to overstate it I wouldn't say I felt particularly violated I I understand why some people might having any photo of them taken off a a site like Instagram but there is something that's just deeply hilarious about this too which I (laughs) which I recognize and you know like there are far worse things I suppose that could be posted but I think for me it was just the real shock that things that I uploaded completely innocently so I uploaded in 2017 a video of a tortoise that I found quite funny when I was in Thailand and my foot was in part of the shot and somebody had watched the video, paused the video, screenshotted the video and uploaded these photos to WikiFeet. Um, Our host listeners are trying really hard not to laugh into the microphone right now. And I guess that was kind of baffling to me, like a a helpful reminder that what you put out into the world isn't necessarily what people will take. They might take something else from it. They might twist it and turn it and make it slightly more sinister. And look, the libertarian in me really doesn't want to judge, you know? People... people are right to be interested in whatever floats their boat. This just wasn't especially my thing. And I was amazed to find that my feet had been roped into it without my knowledge.
0: Well, when you started um, trawling through the website for the sake of writing this piece, mm-hmm. well, yeah, What so what did you learn from from going through WikiFeet? I mean, um, as you say, it does, <laughs> doesn't float your boat, but did, <laughs> could, could you see what people might... Might find appealing about feet? Is there anything? No,
7: I can't say I had that much of a transformation. But the thing about the website itself, which is very funny, is that even though it's obviously there for fetish content, it's extremely serious. It has like a whole set of rules about what you can and cannot do, and you're not allowed to post anything sexual. You can't post any fantasies. Um, That's all completely off limits. It says you have to only type comments about the aesthetics and symmetry of feet. Um, uh, In short, I think it says stay classy with. Like a little winky face, and there's merchandise you can buy about feet. They're launching a dating website, which it specifies will be for people who like feet and also people who don't. It's going to be inclusive. We have
1: feet. (laughs)
7: Yes, yes. It's for it's wanting to be as inclusive as possible. So look, I you're all I can really say is you're welcome. Um, This was a rabbit hole. I wasn't planning on going down and I did for you
6: guys. (laughs)
1: And just just to finish on what would be your advice for anyone looking to start getting into the foot picture selling industry?
6: I definitely would encourage them to do their homework, you know, make sure that you understand where you're posting your feet and what are going to be the rules about it because I wouldn't want my feet to just show up anywhere and I wouldn't want to be shocked to find them somewhere. It was Some places you upload things and you don't control the copyright anymore. I think you have to be careful about that because maybe you're the one that's standing on those really popular feet that everybody wants. And you could have made a lot more money if you had marketed them yourself instead of those platforms. (laughs) So do your homework.
7: I, look, I I can't say I am, but as we discussed when writing this piece, I have intentionally held information back about my shoe size and the rest of it. In case I get fired for writing this piece, I will have somewhere to go for a bit more income.
0: Well, la- Lara started this <laughs> segment with a with an apology to Kate. I think I should finish it with it with a similar apology for for begging her to write this piece. I, uh, don't, extremely... I don't accept yours. I only
7: well, accept Lara's. <laughs> very
0: good, very good sport. And um, thank you uh, for for joining us. Uh, Kate, and thank you as well, Teresa, for joining us for what is by far the weirdest thing we've ever recorded for this podcast. So thank you both very, very much indeed. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Kate and Teresa. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to The Spectator to read the articles we discussed on the podcast? And if you subscribe today, you'll also get a £20 Amazon gift voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk slash voucher. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Laura Prendergast and we look forward to you joining us again next week.